0: Your seats. I want to welcome you into uh, part one of a new five part series where we're looking at the life of David. Um, now, David probably arguably is one of the most famous characters in the Bible. If you're to, you know, walk down the street and, and catch someone in the street and say, hey, tell me five Bible characters, I, I probably would guess that David would be in one of their five. But what I, I want to slightly argue David's probably one of the most popular characters. But he's also maybe one of the least known. Because we know, we know about David and Goliath, but do we know how David even got there? We know about David and Bathsheba, but we, do we know what was going on before and after that all happened? We know that David had a son called Solomon. But you know David had eight wives? He had 19 sons? We all know about Solomon. What about the other 18? That eight, nineteen 19 sons and one daughter, that's just what we know of. And, and I was trying to think of a list of all the things we could kind of say David is. And, and, and as I was writing this down, all I, has anyone ever heard um, The Joker by the Steve Miller band? Three people have heard it, right, this isn't going to work, never mind. But I just have this thing, you know, he's a shepherd, he's a sinner, he's a, he's a battle winner, he plays his music in the sun, he's a lover, he's a fighter, he's a circumciser. He had a son called Solomon. I'm available, weddings, funerals, um, baptisms, do do call me. Um, But David wrote 73 of the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms we have in our Bible. David wrote 73 of them. But do do we know what was going on in David's life when he wrote them? And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of David, uh, particularly five different aspects of his life. And then through July and August, we're going to be looking at the Psalms he wrote. So looking at how David's experiences influenced his worship and how these psalms can speak to us today. So, so that's where we're going for the summer, just to let you know. Um, before I start, I, I heard a story the other day about three, uh, three men who were hiking through uh, the jungle, uh, and they come across this large, uh, fast-flowing, huge river that, that they just can't cross. And, and they need to get to the other side. So one man, he starts to pray and he says, God. Give me the strength to cross this river. And in a moment, God gives him huge arms, powerful shoulders, and 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 he's able to swim across the river. The second man sees this and said, God, give me the strength and the tools to cross this river. In a moment, God gives him a kayak and some oars. So he jumps in the kayak and he rows over to the other side the third man looks at this and says okay here we go God give me the give me the strength give me the tools and give me the intelligence to cross this river God turned him into a woman he pulled out the map walked down the stream and crossed over the bridge when you change your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, I- I'd love you to just keep that open because we're going to do a bit of a narrative um, message this morning just through this, this chapter. So I-, I will be coming in and out of it. I want to try and give you some context as we go through. But, but Saul at this point, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul is king of Israel. But Saul's been a bit of a nightmare. He's constantly disobeying God and there's there's one battle in particular where he disobeys a direct command from God and God says, okay, we're done. This is it. He says to a guy called Samuel, go and anoint a new king. He gives Samuel instructions, go to a town called Bethlehem, go and find a man called Jesse, get his sons to join you and go there to make a sacrifice. And he gets there, he meets Jesse, says it, verse 6, when they arrive, so these sons are called up, because Samuel says, bring your sons. Jesse doesn't know why. But these sons come up, it says, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Now, if you just stop there, you're thinking, why is he saying that? Is it because he's the oldest? What, what, what is it about it? But if you go back 25 years to where Saul is anointed. It says this about Saul. Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. And so, so Samuel's called to do this job, the same job he did 25 years ago. And he, and he looks at Jesse's oldest son and goes, This is the guy. So assuming what we know about Saul, we have to assume that that Eliab is tall, he's dark, he's handsome, because Samuel went for what he thought God went for before. Samuel saw a tall, handsome man and said, that's my man. And he looks at Eliab, he sees the physical similarities and goes, well, this must be the one. But what does God say? Don't judge by his appearance or his height. I have... Rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel's problem is he's going by man's template, not God's. And God doesn't go by our template. God doesn't look at what we look at. God says this in Isaiah My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine, just as the heavens are higher than the earth. My ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. God doesn't think the way we do. His template is way beyond ours. If you think about Jesus, when Jesus is is on the the, the, the mountainside and he's teaching these Beatitudes, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And it it just sounds wrong. Because he's announcing blessings on you thinking, well, how, how are these guys blessed? because Jesus is going against what we naturally think. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. God doesn't look at things the way we look at things. And Samuel had based his judgment, he, he, he looked at this son and gone, this is the one, because he based it on what was external. And he thought God had chosen Saul for his looks. And when it came to the next king, Samuel went, well, it's got to be this one. God's got to do the same, but God says, no, you, you, you misjudged it. I don't look by outward appearance. I look at the heart. 2 Chronicles 16, we read this verse a few times over the last few weeks. It says this, the Lord searches the earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Can I tell you, church, God's looking at your heart. And he's looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's not looking for the best looking. He's not looking for the tallest. He's not looking for the most talented. He's searching for the committed. And when he finds them, he strengthens them. David's son Solomon said this, God, give your people what their actions deserve. You know each human heart. He knows your heart. He knows what's in it, and he knows what shouldn't be in it. And he wants to, to, and he also knows what he wants to put in it, by the way. And, and he wants to, to strengthen your heart. He wants to strengthen you as long as you're committed to him. And, and Samuel gets, gets the point quite quickly. And we read this time as we go through these sons, and you can read it in your Bibles, Samuel doesn't say anything. He just calls the sons forward and waits for God to speak. And Samuel's learned not to follow that pattern. And, 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 and it's interesting because it says that all seven of Jesse's sons Go past and God says no to all of them and I just really fascinating line all seven because Jesse had eight sons so where's the eighth because Jesse doesn't even mention him the Bible doesn't even mention him but God doesn't make mistakes because you can imagine Samuel now he's going God you've sent me here to to anoint a son Jesse's given me all his sons and there's no there's no son here there must be another son. And Samuel says, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest. But he's out with the sheep. So here's my question. Why wasn't David there? Why wasn't David there with the other, with the other brothers? Because and, and, surely they'd have all been working, and surely Jesse would have called them in. And, and, and I want to suggest, this gives us a clue to David's age. Because, remember, Samuel's premise for being there, he's there to anoint uh, the, the new king, but he says to God, God, I'm just worried about how this is going to look. So God says, well, do it and do it under the, not the pretense, that's the wrong word, but go and make a sacrifice. And the thing is, you couldn't, go, you couldn't take part of a sacrifice if you were under the age of 13. So it's likely, and I want you to hold this on for later, it's likely that David is not there because he's not old enough. He's not there because he's 12 years old. And I want you to just hold that as we come into the rest of David's story. David is 12 years old. And he's out, leaving, he's out with the, the sheep, and, and keeping the sheep was, it was, a, was, a, it was a servant's job. It wasn't a job for the family. If you, if you were wealthy enough, you got a servant to look after your sheep. So the fact that David's looking after the sheep shows this is not a particularly wealthy family. If they couldn't afford servants, the job fell to the youngest so now, now, most anything involving animals, anything involving herding or, or, or trading, driving animals, for, for Jewish people, that was the worst job ever. It was actually seen as a despised trade. So you've got David, this 12-year-old boy. They don't want to know because he's doing the job no one wants him to do or no one wants to do. And it says this, that the, the, there's, a, there's a book called the Mishnah, which is a, a, a book kind of explaining the Jewish law. And it, it says this, that you cannot buy milk or wool directly from a shepherd because you can't guarantee they didn't steal it. Shepherds were not trusted. It was assumed by most people that shepherds were thieves. And they just robbed their, 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 their masters blind. That The Talmud, which is another Jewish book that, that is, is debates on the law, it says this, that a shepherd, if you saw, if you saw someone, I don't know, you walked out in the middle of Newbridge and someone uh, ran someone over... And there's a shepherd there, and this shepherd sees it all. That shepherd can't be a witness because he's a shepherd. Not trusted. So here's David, this 12-year-old shepherd. you know that's why Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd? Because there wasn't many. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Shepherd, Jesus knew shepherds weren't seen as good, but to be a good shepherd, you had to love your sheep. You had to know your sheep, and we, we see that David spent hours among the sheep, hours caring for the sheep, hours feeding the sheep, hours leading the sheep, hours protecting the sheep. And I just wonder that as he did all that, he had time to consider who God was. And what did David write? The Lord is my shepherd. I'm convinced it's only by being a shepherd that that David could write about God being his. Uh, And we could do a whole message series on on Psalm 23, looking at how God leads us, guides us, protects us, comforts us, uh, provides for us, goes goes with us. But uh, but I'm convinced that David knew how to use that analogy because that was what he did every day. At 12 years old, David had a revelation of the goodness of God. And even when David becomes king, by the way, he never loses. That Psalm 78 talks about David. It says this, that God chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took him from tending the sheep and made him a shepherd of God's people. What did he do? He cared for them. Here's this next line, with a true heart. And led them with skillful hands, but but at this point, David is this this boy shepherd, and he's left out in the fields doing the job no one wants to do. He's left out of the parade that that Jesse puts on, and Samuel says, go and get him. And I love this. I I think this is hilarious, because we we just talked about how appearances aren't important to God. Look at the next line. He was dark and handsome, with beautiful eyes. That's hilarious to me. You know, God doesn't look at outward appearances, but David was good looking. And I'll notice this is a focus on the eyes. He had beautiful eyes. Now, if someone said to me, you've got beautiful eyes, I'd be a bit concerned. <laughs> but, but why is that important? And I put this on the screen. I apologize if this is a bit small. But if you look at how many words the word seeing or looking are used here. And then right at the end, it, it talks about David's eyes being Beautiful, and, and I wonder if God is encouraging us to see things the way God sees them. And, 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 and we know that God sees something in David that no one else sees. So I want to suggest it's, it's maybe David's eyes are beautiful not because of the way they look, but because of the way they see. That if David's a man after God's own heart, he sees things the way God sees them. That David has the heart God is looking for and because david's heart is right he can see what god sees says later in chapter 13 samuel says that god has sought a man after his own heart the lord's already appointed him to be the leader of his people he's talking about david In Acts, uh, Paul is giving a history lesson to a people in, in a city called Antioch. And he says this, God removed Saul and placed him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Look at this next line, he will do everything I want him to do. God searches the world looking for those whose hearts are committed to him. I think God's looking for people who will see things the way God sees them which actually helps us when we move into this next chapter, because, because when the whole world sees a giant that, that no one can defeat, David sees the reality of a God-mocker who, who is no contest for the savior of the universe. I mean, look what he says about Goliath. Who's this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Don't worry about this, Philistine. I'll fight him. And when everyone's calling Goliath a giant while everyone else is running in fear, David sees him through the eyes of God. And David, while everyone else is cowering, David looks at Goliath and goes, who's this guy? Who does he think he is? He's strutting about all day. He thinks he's the man, but he's nothing compared to my God. His his strength is nothing compared to my God's. His fighting ability is nothing compared to my God's. His weapons are nothing compared to my God's. He might be big, but my God's bigger. He might cast a shadow, but my God brings light. He might make them scared, but my God makes me brave. And churches are calling on us to see the world through the eyes of God. To see our mountains. To see our challenges. And to say our God's bigger. There's nothing our God can't do. But we do that by making our hearts committed to him. That's the first place. And we'll come on to David and Goliath in, in a few weeks' time, but, but, but here in this moment, David's anointed king. he's been anointed king. Now there's two problems: there's already a king. And David is 12. Do you know David doesn't become king for another 18 years? Oh, I just want to imagine have ever, sorry I'll, I'll come back to has anyone seen "The Lion King? Lion King, incredible film. If you haven't seen it, seriously, where have you been? Um, uh, well, just watch it tonight. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant musical about this lion called Simba. And I, I don't know if you know this. I, I need to say this. I need to get this out of my system. It was last year I discovered the same guy who voices Mufasa voices Darth Vader. Now I appreciate I am late to that party, but I only I only found out last year, and, I, I, and ever since then I've just wanted Mufasa to say Simba. I am your father. <laughs> anyway, anyway Simba's, this, Simba's this lion cub, and he knows that one day he's going to be king. He knows. And there's a moment in the film where he gets really frustrated because he's only a cub, and he's still being told what to do, he's still being told where he can and can't go. And Simba sings this song I'm going to be a mighty king enemies beware I'm going to be the main event like no king was before I'm brushing up on looking down I'm working on my role everybody I just can't wait to be king I want you to imagine David 12 years old he knows he's going to be king And this prophet from God comes all the way to Bethlehem, not just to pray over him, not just to bless him, but to anoint him king. Can you imagine David the next day when his brothers start ordering him around? When his brothers start telling him what to do. Actually, when he goes to fight Goliath, we'll see that in a few weeks' time, his brothers tell him off when he gets there. And I just wonder, because if that was anyone else, they'd be singing this, no one saying do this. No one saying be there. No one saying stop that. No one saying see here. I just can't wait to be King. It's a 12 year old boy. And I wonder if he lived with that tension, but what do we see in his life? He just went back to the fields. He tended his sheep, practiced his harp, he worked on his his stone slinging. His heart wasn't committed to his own glory, his heart was committed to God. As we move into this next section of this this story, we're we're left with a question. How how was David going to become king? He's 12 years old. He's not an an heir to the throne. He's not a warrior. He's not a soldier. How could that happen? Well, look what God does next. It says, the Lord sent a tormenting spirit to Saul that filled him with depression and fear. Now, God had to get David into Saul's world. And he does it this way. Now, I just want to just clarify this. The Hebrew language is very figurative. Uh, you know, nothing evil comes from God. Nothing evil comes from God. So, so even, I know it says God sent a evil, evil spirit. I don't think God sent it. I think what happened, God's spirit left Saul and God allowed another one to take his place. So God allowed an evil spirit to go and take possession of Saul. And these servants come along and you can read the text and they basically say this, Saul, you need a worship leader. You need someone who's going to lead you into the presence of God. And guess what? We know a guy. We know who you need. And I think this is fascinating because David's reputation went before him. We don't know how they knew David. We don't know how they knew about David. We don't know what David had done, but we knew his reputation went before him. Look at this, say this. They say he's a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war. He's got good judgment, and he's also good looking. Just to get that in. Now that's a lot of attributes for a 12-year-old. To be an accomplished harp player. He's an accomplished speaker. He's he's a warrior. And you look at him in the natural. Do you know, I've seen 12-year-olds who couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag. But here's David. How? The Lord is with him. And I want to suggest that all these things happen. He is, he's a talented heart player, brave warrior, good judgment because God is with him. And we, we said this the last couple of weeks. What, what we see demonstrated on the outside is actually revealing what's inside. That David is a man after God's own heart. The Lord searches the earth looking to strengthen those who are fully committed to God was with David, strengthening him in actually every aspect of his life. Why? Because David was committed to God. If If we move on in the text, it said that whenever David played, the evil spirit went. Whenever David played for Saul, the evil spirit had to flee. How does that work? David's full of the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So when David goes in full of the spirit of God and he leads Saul into God's presence, that spirit has to go. And all this com- culminates in, in David being appointed to Saul's court. It so says Saul was pleased with David. He says he says to Jesse, please, can David come and become my servant? David's heart for God got David into the exact place God needed him to be. Because it's from that place we see David accelerate into Saul's life. Church, can I encourage you, if your heart is committed to God, God will use Your circumstances to put you exactly where he wants you to be. Psalm 37 says this, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. He he directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Those who are those godly people, those who are committed to him. I'm going to invite the band back up, and I want to close with this. Because when we open up the story of David's life, we find him as a, as a young shepherd out in the fields, almost forgotten by his father. But God saw him. God saw his heart. God saw his character. God, God saw he would become, and God has incredible ways of bringing us into his purpose. Romans 8.28 says this, we know that God causes Everything to work together for the good of those who do what? Love God. And are called according to his purpose. God's got a calling for all of us. And he brings everything together for the good of those that love him. I'll say it again. The eyes of the Lord search the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are committed to him. I just felt I needed to say this. wherever you are right now, I just this this sense as I was preparing this, there there are people here, there's there's a feeling as if God's forgotten you. Or maybe you've been overlooked, or you feel you've been overlooked. Maybe you feel like you you just got no purpose. maybe maybe you feel like I'm, I'm just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Can I just encourage you, if that's you? The, You might be in the exact right place God needs you to be. And if you stick with it, if you trust God, if you're committed to God, he'll do the rest. He takes David a shepherd boy and he moves him into the palace. He'll bring all things together for good. Do you know if Joseph was never thrown into the pit by his brothers, he may never have made it to Egypt? If Joseph hadn't been sold to Potiphar, he may never have ended up in Pharaoh's prison. He may never have met the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker in the prison. If Moses hadn't killed that Egyptian, he might never have encountered God in the desert. If Ehud hadn't been left-handed, if Gideon hadn't been hiding in a wine press, the Israelites might not have been rescued. If Ruth hadn't decided to follow Naomi to Bethlehem, then David's grandfather might never have been born. If Daniel hadn't served God in Babylon, Cyrus may not have decreed to let the Israelites go free. If Nehemiah hadn't been a waiter to a Babylonian king, Jerusalem may never have been built. Can I read you one line from the story of Esther? And I think you know where I'm going with this. This Hebrew girl, she becomes the queen of a foreign land. She ends up saving the the whole nation, but there's a moment in her life where she feels totally helpless. She's facing the extermination of of the Jewish people, and her uncle says to her, Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Maybe you are where you are right now for such a time as this. And maybe God's saying, I've got another plan for you. I've got another step for you. Just trust me. Just commit to me. Get a heart after mine and I'll strengthen you. I'll give you the strength if you commit to me. I'll bring all things together for good. I'll bring light to your darkness. I'll bring peace to your chaos. I'll bring life to your dead places. Just trust in my goodness. Trust in my faithfulness. Psalm 37 says this, commit everything you do to the Lord. Do what trust him and he will. You know, we often quote Jeremiah 29. It says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good, to give you a future and a hope. And if you read that in context, it's a message to a people who are in the wrong place. It's a message to people who, 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 they want to be in Jerusalem, but they find themselves in Babylon. They're, they're slaves when they want to be free. Everything around them is wrong, but God says this in their, in their place of captivity. When it all feels wrong, he says this, build a house. Plan to stay. Plant gardens. Eat the food. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I send you into exile. Pray to God for it, I've put you here. Don't try and get out, don't try and escape, don't try and run away. Build a house, plan to stay. Why? Because I know the plans, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good, they are plans to give you a future and a hope. When you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly with your whole heart, with everything you are, if you look for God, if you, you fully commit to Him, what happens, you'll find Him. It says that He'll end your captivity and restore your fortunes. And I want to encourage you, wherever you are, whatever is going on in your life, look for God with everything you've got. Look to his goodness. Look to his faithfulness look to his mercy look to his justice look to his grace commit everything you do to God in your place where you are and he will help you let me stand together father god would you help us to trust in your faithfulness help us to trust in your goodness help us com- to commit to serving you to serving the plans you have for us right here and now. God, we just want to say we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we commit our lives to you again. God, forgive us if we've lost our focus. Forgive us if we've become half-hearted. We choose in this moment to turn to you with all our hearts, all our minds, All our souls, just because you're worth it, because you're worthy, we choose to live to honor everything you've done in our lives. God, we surrender our lives over to you. We give you everything so that you might have your way in our lives. Just where you are, when you take a moment. Commit your situation. Commit your mountain. Commit your battle. Commit your confusion. Commit your frustration. Commit your questions. God I'm going after you I'm bringing this to you placing this in your hands because you are able you are mighty to save and nothing is impossible for you